If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The Holocaust is an event so vast and terrible, it can often be hard to wrap our heads around. But, Martin Davidson argues in his new book, Mobilising Hate, It's important to try and grapple with the psychological factors that motivated perpetrators and to understand the ideological mindset that they used to justify their actions. Martin is an author and a former TV producer and commissioner who specialises in history. And I spoke to him to find out more. Thank you so much for joining me, Martin. Mobilising Hate is your second book that grapples with difficult issues of the psychology that underpinned Nazi Germany and motivations behind the Holocaust. So what drew you to this dark chapter of history? Um, What drew me was a very strong family connection, which was I have German family and I discovered uh, in the 90s that my German grandfather had been a Nazi and not only that, had been a member of the SS. And this was a completely shattering revelation to make and it sort of like the hottest potato landing on your lap but just sort of burning a hole through my trousers as I was trying to think, what on earth do I do with that? But once it took root in my brain, it bothered me. I was a history television producer, so I sort of felt I'm making a lot of films, pointing my cameras at other people, getting them to tell their stories. And I've got this thing that will not go away, rattling around inside my skull. And I thought, in conjunction with my sister, we decided time had come to turn around, take a deep breath, roll our sleeves up and find out what the hell the revelation that he'd been in in the SS, what did that mean? And from that grew a project that culminated in a book I wrote called The Perfect Nazi, a portrait of a type of Nazi who had entered the party young, committed, and had at every stage of his career culminating in becoming not just an SS, but an SD. Uh, the SD, the Sicherheitsdienst Security Service, was the elite group within the elite of the SS. This is the dark heart of the willful, conscientious, explicitly convinced Nazi universe. So that was the origin story. So as you say, you were led down this this rabbit hole, really, of research into the Holocaust that's culminated in this book. I mean, there have been many, many books written about the Holocaust in the decades since it happened. So why did you think that this subject needed re-examining? Well, the the intention of my book is to add to the sum total of knowledge of the Holocaust, not to replace it or to challenge it. I think there was a timeliness to it. I think there was something about 
the state of the world in the early 2020s, and I'm talking about the undeniable sense that we're in a rockier place with a lot of our political values, a lot of our shared political assumptions. The world is not the happiest it has ever been. There seems to be a sense in which what had been taken as for granted for 50 or 60 years is some of the lessons not just of the Holocaust, but of fascism and Nazism in general, seemed to be slightly more up for grabs again. But that was the background that made sense to me of maybe this is a moment to go and revisit that, not in the banal sense of I'm going to prove that the year 2020 is just a doppelganger for the year 1930. Of course not. It's not nearly as literal as that. They just felt that there was a there was something in the air that made going back and having a look interesting. So what I've what I've tried to do to justify the inclusion of one more book is I have attempted to give it a sort of coiled psychological spring to start the book with an idea about how political motivation might work that would potentially culminate in something as awful as first of all the Third Reich and then the world war, and then in that war, a catastrophic war of genocide. These three huge, none of which are inevitable, none of which are preordained, but you can't have one. Remove one of them and the chain collapses. And also in TV producer mode, to turn it into a narrative in a way that I don't think gets done. I think I think people feel to tell it as a sequence of events feels somehow to demean it. It occupies a sphere of human significance sort of above the sort of perchances and contingencies of mere historical progression. It, that, that you can't explain something this has simply been the product of what Harold McMillan would call events, dear boy, events. It can't possibly be that. But yes, it can, in the sense that the form that this finally took needed every single step that had come before it to have happened in the order in which they happened for it to happen. There were moments when decisions seemed to be made, watersheds seemed to be breached. So I wanted to draw those together, I suppose, as a chain of events told with more regard to the kind of narrative momentum of what happens when these ideas that the Nazis have, when they're rolled into motion, um, and when they encounter all sorts of impediments and challenges and unexpected moments. So you spoke about a coiled psychological spring at the heart of this that triggered this chain of events, as you put it. What do you see that as being? It's takes two forms. One is there is an intellectual framework and it's an appalling concession to make. Are you seriously suggesting that the kind of anti-Jewish hatred and vitriol that is the absolutely characteristic tuning fork of Nazi discourse at, from the beginning to the very end, you telling me that has the conceptual framework of being an idea. And the horrible truth is, yes, it has all the attributes of an idea. It was rationalised, anatomised, justified, written about and offered up to the world as a coherent worldview with all that that implies. But the second ingredient is there is an emotional flashpoint that's driving it. And I, I use the word malevolence. When we talk about the Holocaust, you very, very quickly get the idea this is human evil. And the trouble with the word evil is you get stuck in a circular because the, the moment you've said it, you then are guilty of going, oh, well, so if it's only evil monsters and psychopaths that do it, well, that's me off the hook. And then, then the historian always goes, no, 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 it could be everyone. It, it's wrong to demarcate and push to one side these people as being somehow outside the realm of human experience. They're just monsters. That's Because if that was true, it's easy. 
so then you go, okay, they're, they're people like us again. So you're saying they're not evil. So, well, they are. Right. So my way out of that circuit was to take this word malevolence. And I lifted it from an extraordinary book written in 1991 called Hitler's Bureaucrats. And it was a study of Adolf Eichmann, the infamous architect of the Holocaust. He was the man in charge of the trains, essentially. It was his job to organize the physical deportation of millions of people from their homes all over Europe into these camps, a job he took vast professional pride on and turned out was rather good at. He's arrested in Argentina in 1960, put on trial famously in 1961 in Jerusalem and is hanged. And what this book tried to explain was, here's a man who's a bureaucrat, he's a technocrat, he's a functionary, and he would use that as the basis of his defense, the famous, I was only obeying orders. The author of this book, who was a senior archivist at Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum Gallery in um, Institute in Jerusalem, he says, there are four levels of evil. And I remember reading it thinking, you can't, compress the Holocaust. Of what, this sounds a bit bit banal. For But I read it and I thought, do you know what? That really rings true. Level one, selfishness. You're not doing evil to anyone, but you're sort of feeling unless absolutely required, there's no need for you to do very much. You're okay. Indifference is the next one, which is you see what's going on. But there's a bit of you thinks, well, it's, not only is it not my business, but there's a slight sense of, well, maybe no smoke without fire. Either way, I don't care enough to do anything about it. The third level was heartlessness, where you you go, well, I, I don't wish any individual any harm, but I think something, some kind of reckoning was needed. And if you ask me, I'm not completely altogether unhappy with this as a result, particularly if all the rhetoric is true and that Germany will be a much stronger nation without these people here. And the last is malevolence. Malevolence is defined as being the active pursuit of harm to inflict on other people. Inflicting harm, inflicting suffering, and in other words, it's the doing of evil, the wanting to do it. It's it's about agency. And I looked at that and it reminded me of a very famous phrase that Hitler would use. This is not a humorous man, Hitler, on the main, but he had a streak of black sort of black gallows, maliciousness, sarcasm in his speech-making repertoire. And there was a a speech, and he he repeated this phrase a number of times. And I remember spotting it years ago, thinking, that's a very vicious phrase. And I choose a moment in November 1942, right at the darkest point of the war. Germany hasn't quite lost control of the Eastern Front, but it doesn't know it yet. It's about to. Um, So it's a desperate moment. And he has this speech, does it every year. It's kind of like State of the Union. It lasts two and a half hours, and it's to to rally the troops and uh, the the old faithful, and to help convince himself that he's still a master of his old destiny. And here's this phrase, and right in the middle of the speech, and it's sort of a throwaway line, and he just says, well, yeah, and as for the Jews, I made a prophecy. I made a prophecy in this, this infamous prophecy that he made a number of times, which is if the Jews drag us into a world war, it'll be them who pay the price, not us. And But he uses the phrase, and I, I tell you, and it's you can hear the audience. They're not laughing now. They're not laughing now. I've wiped the smile from their faces. And that really stuck on my throat as being the perfect embodiment of malevolence. In other words, these are people who thought they'd got one over on you, on us in Germany. And all the suffering that that has been Germany's predicaments, particularly after the the so-called defeat, which of course in the German's view wasn't a defeat after World War I, we have been at the mercy of endless Jewish nefariousness of all sorts of different sorts. And they were laughing at us and we were simply their dupes. Well, I've got news for them. Don't feel so smart now, do you? I mean, it's literally the language of the playground bully. And what you get from that malevolence is righteous anger 
addressed at people accused of having made you suffer contempt as well as loss, against whom you have turned the tables and you're now repaying them tenfold and you are inviting everyone to take massive schadenfreude of pleasure in their reduced circumstances. And that tuning fork note of they're not laughing now, I, I found it replicated through so much of Nazi discourse. What I try and do in the book is expand on what are the intellectual origins of that? What, what, what is the suffering Germany is supposed to have endured at the hands of Jews that would merit, in Hitler's mind, nothing less than there is no comeback Short, I mean, short of total annihilation that you haven't deserved. And at the very moment you're now clocking what's about to happen to you is the moment of highest satisfaction of a man put on earth by destiny to punish you in exactly this way. And I felt that that to me had a kind of raw, inflammatory, explanatory power. I thought, do you know what? I know what that feels like. It's a very powerful symptom of both e vast economic insecurity. This could only have happened, the whole Nazi thing could only have happened because Germany was utterly broken. Economic uncertainty and also the kind of cultural polarization that spins out of it. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. And I guess a point that is reiterated through your book is that rhetoric is all well and good, this malevolent anti-Semitic rhetoric. But in order for that to have any power, it needs ordinary people and the population to buy into it. So what did that offer ordinary German people? And can you give us a sense of how much ordinary German people did buy into this rhetoric and this worldview? Well, the thing that's so extraordinary about charting the course taken by this idea, what I would call malevolent anti-Semitism. So it's Jew hatred with a real desire to, to act on it. This isn't just stewing away in the back of one person's prejudiced mind. This 
translates very quickly into a program. It must be dealt with. It, hence, the title of my book is Mobilizing Hate. It's a transitive verb. It is an active verb. It is the idea that this was the product of a lot of very, very deeply considered propulsion. Anyone who talks about the Nazi period in terms of the image of the slippery slope, or it, it's, you start with this and before you know it, it's completely the other way around. There's nothing slippery about this slope at all. It's like pushing a rock up a hill. You have to really roll your sleeves up and push it. And what you see in the way that Hitler does it is he spends four or five years formulating the idea. It takes him four or five years till it absolutely is lodged in his mind as being the most powerful explanation for all of history, past, present, and future. It's an explanation for how the entire world works, not just what his attitude to Jews are. The Jews are the great kind of portal in his mind to understanding the truth of all all politics, all geopolitics, all security questions for Germany's future. He then turns that into the sort of central guiding principle of a political movement, which is still a minority one. That then grows, and then in 1933, on the acquisition of power, he's, he's the second most powerful person in Germany, is the Nazi chancellor. His job then is to, right, how do I now make this a central guiding principle to a regime? And he and Goebbels, his head of propaganda, um, and Goebbels in particular is the key figure you'll not be surprised to discover. And it's his malign genius who understands there is a gap between what you might call the agnostics and the fanatics. And actually, yes, of course, there is a tradition of anti-Semitism in Germany, as there is in Britain, as there is in France, and certainly in Russia. But the Jewish population in Germany, 1% of the population, 600,000 or so, has been incredibly assimilated. Nobody's had a problem. So... It's Goebbels' job to decide, how do I turn these people into pariahs? Given that, first of all, most ordinary Germans don't even know any Jewish people. And if they do, they're usually incredibly respectable, patriotic, very pro-German, next-door neighbours who might be a lawyer or a paediatrician or a, an accountant or a tailor. These are all unbelievably respectable positions in a society that is that makes a fetish out of respectability like Germany does. And uh, it's a long, slow battle. The first way you do it is to turn a, a community of people into a pariah. The two most powerful links that tie a community to a wider population are sex and money. And that's where the Nazis turn on first. So they, the very first thing they do within months, weeks, of coming to power in uh, January 1933 on April the 1st is the infamous economic boycott. And SA troops stand outside Jewish shops and people are discouraged from spending their money with Jewish businesses. Only moderately successful because at this point, a lot of Germans are going, well, but the Wertheim department store is superb. It's really good. They offer the best price. I've been shopping there for years. What do you mean I can't go? What are you talking about? The other uh, axis they use is sex, and that sex is, is easy because it's both prurience and also piety. You've got the whole gamut of emotions that you can write. So at the gutter level, you have in Stryker's appalling magazine, Der Sturmer, which is the Nazi hate rag. It's all leering, lecherous Jews preying on innocent German maidens. There's also this thing called the pillory march. So this explodes all over regional Germany, where a lot of couples caught in sexual relations that cross the race lines are hounded up and down the street with placards of shame around their necks being booed and jeered and spat at and then led off by the police. And usually, if, if it's a Jewish man, I mean tortured, beaten up, if not killed. So that happens all over all over Germany. But at the higher level, both sex and money end up producing more carefully calculated forms. So 
Just boycotting Jewish shops is not enough. How about we just expropriate their businesses, sell them cheap? That then, expropriation then becomes a much more effective way of recruiting Germans to the idea that Jewish misery is something they, they can live with and profit from. And the second thing is sex then becomes couched in the most pious terms as, and they borrow this from the American Deep South, the whole idea of race honour. So sex isn't just a grubby a grubby transaction between one man and one woman. It becomes the sacramental value of the deepest bloodline of the whole nation. And they introduce these laws and they use that phrase, you know, race shame, race honour, very much like the Ku Klux Klan do in America, where miscegnation, you know, sexual relationships that cross the race line are considered you're polluting the nation's soul, not just your own relationship. So that's how it kind of moves. There's a, There's also a sense in which all of Germany's intellectuals, they jump in and their mission is to define the Jew as a prior, not just from society, but from humanity and civilization themselves. And they do that with theology, anthropology, art criticism, all the ologies and the istics that constitute academic discourse. They all throw in their tuppence worth. And that, I think, creates what you might call a kind of maelstrom. So if you're an ordinary German, you're getting this from the gutter up, from the universities down from local party officials to the left and from government ordinances to the right. It's coming at you at every level. And it all begs the question, nobody ever asks or cannot, does this idea exist? Is there such a thing as race or hierarchy? You can't even question the, pre, the preordained conclusions. The foregone conclusions are made for you. And while there is always going to be a gap between the fanatics and the agnostics, the agnostics are getting less agnostic by the day. So there's no question by the late 30s, there's not a single German in Germany who A, doesn't know that making Jewish lives as miserable as possible isn't a very, very powerful priority in Nazi Germany. They also know that Germany has staked its future on achieving it. So I think there's no question, and, and this will become very important throughout the, the war and after the war in terms of who knew what. They may not have known the detail, but they knew the broad brushstroke. It's very scary how quickly um, a collective can be mobilised behind an idea, but something that may be impossible to unpick is is the genesis of that idea. So obviously we have Adolf Hitler at the centre of all of this, for him and the top Nazi brass, are we able to unpick how much they truly invested in this anti-Semitic worldview? They they really believed in the fantasy. It would be tempting to interpret this as something that they saw as a means of a power play and a means of mobilising people that was about a power grab rather than about ideology. It's the exact opposite. Anti-Semitism per se was not popular. You, I know what you're driving at. This is this is red meat for the base. We don't believe it, but it's really useful. And there's collateral gains to be made if we impoverish Jews. That's good too. It isn't like that. It really isn't like that. And I think there is a, a savage faction all through the, the Nazi state who really, really, really do believe it. Um, are they numerically in the absolute majority? It sort of doesn't matter because with any social attitude, it's about concentric rings. So you have the hot core and each ring out are people who are committed to some of it, but not all of it. There comes a tipping point where it, it literally doesn't matter. If you're, if you're familiar with the everyday self-evident kind of who would bother arguing it, the earth isn't flat, kind of obviousness of anti-Jewish rhetoric, even by, by the outer reaches of that world, 
it's still lapping around your ankles and you're not really going to dispute it. But for the hardcore, do not make this mistake for one minute of thinking they were insincere. They really, 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 and a lot of them really believed it. And also they were at great pains to rationalize why. And also at great pains to say, this isn't just emotional, this is rational, and it is backed up you know, by the science, by which they meant anthropology, I mean, perverted travesties of anthropologies, they understood it, very early kind of race nonsense science, what, what Hugh Trevor Roper called bestial Nordic nonsense. And they all believed. Now, with differences, there were parts of the Nazi world that were all into the mysticism of it, and the Aryans, and ice giants, and, and runes, and all that stuff. And they were very much a laughing stock for other parts of the Nazi world, who drew their anti-Semitism just as powerfully from quite different sources. But the point I make in the book is what you have to understand, what Hitler did with, with his definition of the Jews and why they merited so much of his attention was what I call in the book a kind of racism plus. Because the thing is, yes, we're very familiar that the, what the Nazis used this horrible word, untermenschen, subhuman. But actually, their attitude to the Jews was more complicated than that because these untermenschen also happened, it would seem, in their view of the world, to run the world's stock markets, the world's media. They were the, the agents of communist ideology. Well, not very untermensch-like behaviour to be able to do all of that, particularly if you're really terrified that the combined impact of all of those skills will be to impoverish and shackle the German future. So it's more than just racism. What Hitler does is he Picture. I mean, this is appalling. It's an awful thing to describe. I don't know how many air quotes I can give to contextualize what I'm about to say, but they're there. Anyway, there are three definitions I think that motivate what he his answer. First of all, there is the idea of the Jew, and the Jew draws on from hundreds of years from the age of Martin Luther on, with being a person associated with lots of things that are despicable and verminous, and I don't need to go on. They're objects of almost physical revulsion, and that's the Jew. And even the word is spat. Then there's Judaism. And that's a big deal. Even Hitler, at his most pretentious, sees himself as an agent of world history in defense of European civilization, which he is prepared to believe has been involved in a 2,000-year-plus fight with these agents of cultural decomposition who attack all that is highest and purest in, in life. And from the beginning of being Christ killers all the way through, are involved in, in the most highfalutin cultural war with everything that European civilization, at least according to the Nazi lights, is, is supposed to stand for. So Judaism is a big deal, even though in the end they define Jews as a race, not a religion. But nevertheless, Nevertheless, that is very important for them, even for godless Nazis, fighting this war on behalf of God is a big deal. The third element is the, the new one. And this is the one that I think really mobilizes it. And it's this idea of world jury. So world jury is different from the first two. They overlap, but world jury is, is, is an inflamed, reignited version of an older paranoia that goes back to the Freemasons and the Illuminati of a covert cabal who infests centers of power around the world and take them over. It's the Svengali story. It's, it's the hidden whisperer. Part. And what makes the world jury accusation so potent in the years after the First World War is two things. One is the modern world, very different from the mid-19th century, has two things going for it that are now taking on huger and huger form in the modern era. One is international finance. So the, the global financial networks are more sophisticated than ever before with their telegraphs and their stock markets and all of that. And the second is extremist ideology, uh, courtesy of the Bolshevik revolution. It's the dollar and isms 
And they are both considered weapons with which world jury seek to suborn and subvert the established great powers. And you put those three things together, and why they're so powerful is they each speak to different parts of the audience. If you're a, an SA thug, it's enough that you, you've been told Jews are really disgusting and deserve to be beaten up. If you're a high-minded, oh, I don't know, middle-class Hamburg lawyer who's also a Lutheran, uh, a devout Christian, well, the whole Christ-killing attack mounted on Christian European values is something, you know, a line needs to be drawn. And then for everyone else, there is the, the, the military and economic powers the captains of industry, the, the military leaders are going, this is a powerful global cohort who have declared us their enemy and we can't fight them with the old tools. Diplomacy and declaring war are no good. They're an invisible. Money and ideology cross physical borders. You can't stop it. So it requires a completely different toolkit to both understand it and to prosecute hostility against it. And then what happens is this appalling conflation. It's where geopolitics and biopolitics meet. And those are the two sexiest, uh, newest strands of political thought doing the rounds in the early 20th century. And they both speak to Hitler. And he goes, yes, the, the geopolitics of the, the Jews are responsible for the, the two-front vice-like grip on Germany, and they will squeeze us and squeeze us. But there's also the biopolitics of these are pathogens seeping up through the body politic and, and toxifying us. So the, all of this horrible stuff comes together, but it produces a whole body of pseudo-knowledge from which a program of action is derived. And that's the story I tried to tell in the book. What happens to that? How do you politicize that? How do you weaponize that? How do you turn that into a view of the world for which a genocidal war is the only final sufficient answer? Mm. So you have all these layers of anti-Semitic ideology coming at the German people from every single angle. So after several years of those building up and, as you say, reaching this terrible climax in the Holocaust, where do you go from there? How do you then remove those layers and, and denazify um, a country after, after all of those years of ideological warfare? It's extraordinary because what the Allies did after the war, I mean, they were they were lucky in the sense that 1945 was never a repeat of 1918. And what I mean by that was that 1918, the inability to cauterize completely the, that part of German militarism that, that I, you know, a lot of historians now do believe was instrumental in starting World War One. You couldn't cauterize it and it was left festering and just waiting to burst back into intellect. That doesn't happen in 1945. In 1945, it is game over and every German knows that. And therefore, what the, their main priority after 1945, the general German public, is to construct an alibi for themselves and start again. And their promise, there's a sort of implicit promise is made to the Allies, look... There is no way we're ever going to do that again. Uh, you know, look at us. We're completely destroyed. I mean, of course, it's different which zone you're in, the Soviet zone or the Western zones. I'm primarily talking about the Western zone for the moment. And the deal is, look, help us help us rebuild and you will be safe in the knowledge that there is no Fourth Reich coming. The Soviets weren't so convinced, but the, the Americans, the British and the French looked around and thought, do you know what? We can turn Germany into a capitalist, democratic, liberal, I mean, a sort of version of the Weimar Republic, except this time... 
probably more confident that there is no Hitler coming because there is no Treaty of Versailles this time. A lot of that is kind of convenient thinking as well, to, to be honest. This is the, the terrible truth is, as the Cold War starts to happen, the Americans and the British start realising they have other fish to fry. And by 1949, 1950, there is a sense of a sort of default amnesty. They're not looking for more small fry. If some have been hanged, there have been trials, there have been some executions and prison sentences and stuff. But there is, a, I'm afraid, a slight Faustian pact made with the extent to which the Holocaust can be sort of be swept under the carpet in pursuit of, you know, democratic and the, the economic miracle of the 50s turning West Germany into, you know, sort of an American analogue right in the heart of, you know, what will be the Iron Curtain. And I think a lot of Germans, they are genuinely horrified when the full horror of what would be done in their name is made clear. I do not believe there are millions of Germans going, oh, we got so close. Oh, well, if only, you know, maybe one day we'll get... They're not. I mean, they are genuinely horrified. So you believe that some of the people that perhaps invested in some of the anti-Semitic ideology did not imagine it going as far as it did? Hmm, yes, that's a really good question. I think by 1943, there is a sense that n nobody in Germany now thinks that whatever is happening to the Jews of Europe, including their own Jewish neighbours in the East, is anything less than lethal. But what happens at the end of the war is their get-out clauses. It is true to say it would be very unusual if you specifically knew about gas chambers in a place called Auschwitz. And that then gets held on to. Well, I didn't know about gas chambers in Auschwitz. And that's sort of unimpeachable. That, that's very plausible. You very likely wouldn't have. But you certainly knew about the 1.5 million Jews who were shot by firing squad because your brothers and your cousins and your fathers were the ones sending photographs of these executions back home happily back in 1941 and 1942. So you knew that. And you also knew, you know, that amazing statistic in, in Hamburg alone, when the, the Jews of Hamburg are all rounded up and sent east in 1942, all their properties are auctioned off. 30,000 flats, apartments in Hamburg, Hamburg alone, are expropriated from Jewish owners and handed out to non-Jewish Germans. And they have thousands of auctions. And everybody knows. And there's police reports citing, oh, look, all the ordinary women in this suburb are all wearing fur coats. Where did they come from? Well, they know perfectly well. So if you know enough that there's a Jewish flat, you well, the one thing you know is they're never coming back. The other thing you know is the Eastern Front is synonymous with nothing but the mass slaughter of hundreds of thousands. It is a war being fought with a level of ferocity unprecedented since the 30 years war. And you're sending people there? Men, women and children? What do you think is happening? So the post-war German question is very, very, very fraught. I think there are a lot of residual Nazi attitudes, but by far, I think the majority opinion, particularly when the next generation grow up, is when they realise in horror what their parents had done or had tolerated doing. And, and the big eye-opener is 1960-61 is the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem. So somebody like my mother born in 1937. Now, for her, that's the great eye-opener because the Germans, the two most important things about the Eichmann trial is it's televised, not just filmed, it's televised, and it's broadcast every evening in 56 different countries, including Germany. And every night you see this man, this twitchy, I mean, he's quite arresting looking. He's a, you know, he, he, he's quite a vain looking man uh, behind glass doing this. As, as, and he is the living face of somebody who was responsible for the transporting to the deaths of millions. Discuss. And then you also see for the first time Germans, um, it's testimony. 
Jewish victim after Jewish victim after Jewish victim. So anyone aged between 16 and 25 at that moment is going, what the hell? And the scales drop from their eyes. And from that point on, the anti-Semitism is the hallmark of the Nazi beliefs of their parents and their grandparents. You'll never be able to mobilise that again. That ideology within three generations had been broken down, I think. How much did your mother know about her own father's career? And do you know anything about how she felt about that? Yes, that's that's really interesting. She was born in 37. So by the end of the war, she's seven years old. So yes and no. She knew enough to tell me, oh, well, you know, because there, there was a conversation we had about where he'd ended up in the war. And this is two weeks after he died. That's right, 1992. And I think the burden of him still being alive and her being his secret keeper, which is what happens with families, it's always the immediate family. The person himself could, was utterly brazen. It was everybody else who trod on eggshells. And I think with the burden lifted of him being dead, she last could no, no, he was in the SS. She knew enough to say he was a Hauptsturmführer, which is a, a, an SS rank. It equals this equivalent of a captain. But beyond that, I don't know anything. Then I remember her saying, oh, but he wasn't in the camps. And I remember going at the time, oh, I hope you're right. You seem very sure of that. And I was very sure. I mean, I didn't even know what Hauptsturmführer meant. I had to look it up the next day down all these weird ranks. I then wrote the book. I mean, she hasn't, I mean, she, she gave it her blessing, but she hasn't read it. And I remember, I remember getting a bit high and mighty about that. And then I thought, for God's sake, Martin, she doesn't need to read it. She lived it. You know, I don't need to rub her face in it. You know, she was a seven-year-old child and, and no stretch of the imagination does she have any any responsibility to, to, to bear for this. And never mind the kind of guilt and shame of the years after that where, where they were living under assumed name. I mean, they, they were guilty enough to, they were living in a hostel outside Hamburg and they didn't revert back to their real family name until 1950, which was the moment the kind of general amnesty. And the first thing my German grandfather did was, oh, good, heat's off, I'm reclaiming my name and then they moved back to Berlin by now West Berlin um, and they moved straight back to the very same area where he had grown up as a brown shirt a, a stormtrooper in the 20s and 30s and would spend famously in German pubs as a tradition called a Stammtisch and it's usually in a back room and it's you know on Tuesday nights it's the chess club and Wednesday night it's the stamp collectors and in his case on Thursday night it was all the SS, the SS Alter Kammergarten they would all meet behind a curtain in a sympathetic pub all regaling each other with with war stories. So he, he he went to his grave completely unrepentant. But my mother's life was, her early life was completely shattered and traumatised by it. And, and I've never, why did she need to read it? So we, we, we've left it at that. That was Martin Davidson speaking to me, Ellie Cawthorn. Martin's book is Mobilising Hate, The Story of Hitler's Final Solution. You can find plenty more on the Holocaust, the Nazi regime and World War II in general on our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 